Thank you, Todd and Heidi, for that ministry in music. Tonight, Lord willing, we are going to be in the book of Job and bringing that book to a conclusion. So tonight, the last uh, message in that series from the book of Job. Today, we are looking at the fact that the scripture has a great deal to say concerning wealth, its use, and giving in particular. How we use our wealth is, in fact, a spiritual matter. In 2 Corinthians 8, verse 7, it says, Therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith, in utterance, in knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love to us, see that you abound in this grace also. So listed among faith and love and knowledge is the grace of giving. It is said that a tribal chief came to a missionary bringing blankets and beads and gold to present to the missionary. The missionary said to the tribal chief, My God does not want your beads or your blankets or your gold. My God wants you. To which the tribal chief smiled and said, You have a very wise God. For if he has me, he has my blankets, he has my beads, and he has my gold. The tribal chief was smart enough to realize that making a commitment to Jesus Christ would, in fact, have a bearing upon every aspect of his life. And he was right. Our obedience to Christ affects every aspect of our lives, including the way in which we use our monies. So this passage that we're going to consider this morning centers upon giving. But it is not exhaustive by any means. In other words, this passage is not the one and end all passage on giving. The scripture has much, much to say about giving. And I I need to begin with some uh, qualifications as we look at the passage. The first qualification is that the giving that is in view in this passage is not the regular giving of tithes and offering. That's not what's being addressed here. If that were the case, this passage would read quite differently than what it does. If you notice in verse 8 of chapter 8, Paul says, I'm not speaking this as a command. What Paul is saying about giving in this particular passage is not in the force of a command. In verse 10, he said, I give my opinion in this matter. Now, when Paul is saying that he gives his opinion, he is not distancing himself from his apostolic authority or the inspiration of Scripture. Certainly what Paul is saying, he is saying under the the power of and ministry of the Holy Spirit. What he is doing is differentiating what he says 
from what is found in the scripture. When he says, I'm not speaking this by commandment, he is not looking to an Old Testament commandment on which he is building this instruction. If he were talking about tithing, he easily could look at an Old Testament commandment that speaks about tithing. He's also saying, when he says, I'm giving my opinion, he is differentiating himself, as he does in 1 Corinthians, by the way, using almost the exact same language of what Jesus taught in his earthly ministry and what Paul is teaching. Jesus taught much about a lot of things in his earthly ministry. He even taught a lot about giving. But Paul is saying, I'm telling you something now that Jesus himself did not address. Jesus did address tithing in a kind of unusual way. He did so first by pointing out the Pharisees' preciseness in their approach to tithing. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and common. So, what the Pharisees would do, because they were so precise in their keeping of the law, that when it came to tithing, they would even go out to their garden and count the number of plants and flowers that were on these uh, garden vegetables or spices. And they would sit down and make sure they tithed their mint, they tithed their dill, they tithed their cumin. They, they were very, very careful in their tithing. But even though the Pharisees were careful in their fulfillment of the law regarding tithing, they failed to be careful in the even greater or more important commandments in the law. And Jesus then says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you tithe this mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. In other words, you're so concerned about tithing that you're going to go out in your garden and actually start counting plants. And yet, somehow, you have overlooked justice and mercy and faithfulness. Now, how could that be? How can you be so concerned about this little thing that you let this big area of justice, mercy, and righteousness just go sliding by? But, Jesus then goes on to say, but these are the things you should have done without neglecting the other. So he says, you should have done righteous justice and mercy. But then he reaffirms tithing and says, but you should have done the other as well. It's not an either or, but it's a both and. But they had the stress in the wrong area. But all I'm saying is Jesus reaffirmed tithing in the New Testament. What is being referred to in our passage is a collection that is being taken for the poor saints in Jerusalem. This was a gift 
that was being taken for the saints in Jerusalem who were extremely poor. Paul was charged to fulfill that aspect of his ministry by the other apostles. In other words, the other apostles told Paul that an essential part of his ministry was to be raising funds for the poor saints at Jerusalem. Galatians 2, 9 and 10. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So the one stipulation they gave upon Paul and Barnabas in their ministry was, don't forget about these poor saints in Jerusalem. Paul referred to this collection for the poor saints of Jerusalem when writing to the church at Rome. Romans 15:26. For Macedonia and Caia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So two qualifying thoughts as we begin this passage that we need to keep in mind if we're going to make proper application. First, we're talking about not tithes, not offerings. We're talking about a collection that is being taken for the needy in Jerusalem. And secondly, we need to qualify what I just said. Because I said it was a collection for the needy that were in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, it was a collection for the saints who were needy in Jerusalem. It wasn't a collection for the poor in general. It was a collection for the Christians in Jerusalem who were poor. One of the great uh, experiments that was done in Jerusalem turned out to be a huge failure. And that's something we need to keep in mind when we read uh, Ralph Sider and some of these other books, uh, sometimes about, about giving. And that was that they sold everything, had everything in common. Sounds great, but they all ended up broke. That's important to realize. And they ended up destitute. They ended up without anything. And the other churches had to come to the aid of the church in Jerusalem and help them. Because they were without resource. We need to realize that we bear, as Christians, a degree of responsibility for the poor of this world. But having said that, we have a special responsibility to the poor who are Christians. We have a responsibility to the poor of this world. But we have a greater responsibility to those who are Christians and who are poor. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, while we have opportunity, let us go, do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of the faith. So we should do good to everyone, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. And that word household is placed there 
in a very dramatic and poignant way. And that is we are brothers and sisters in Christ. As such, we are a family. And just as we bear more responsibility for our family than we do for other families, so we bear a greater responsibility for the Christian family or community than for the world. So, for example, our deacons. Our deacons are concerned about the poor in our community. And they minister to the poor in our community. And if people are passing through and they are without foodstuffs, etc., etc., the Board of Deacons has policies to help such people and and, uh, try to uh, come to their aid to a degree. But, by and large, their primary responsibility is for the care of the people of our church. There's a hierarchy of value. And that hierarchy of value is seen in this passage. And that's important because as we look at some of the principles that we're looking at, they only work under that uh, prism, under, under that understanding. We're talking about our responsibilities to our brothers and sisters in the Lord. So the theme is, Paul urges the Corinthians, by the grace of God, to participate in the collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem. Key verse is 8-7. But just as you abandon everything in faith, utterance, and knowledge, and all earnestness, and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. Last week, we emphasized that this passage is talking about grace. And we looked at the three verses that will continually refer to the grace of God. So we want to look at how does grace influence our giving in relationship to our poor brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, the first thing we want to note is that grace in giving is directly connected to the saving grace of God. The Corinthians, as well as all Christians, knew of the grace of God. Verse 9. For you know of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that grace is manifested in the next phrase, that though he was rich, Christ was rich. And the riches that are being referred to here are the riches of the glory that he had in his pre-incarnate state as the Son of God. He was rich. He was glorious. He was in the heavenlies. And he became poor. Notice the second phrase. Yet for your sake he became poor. Referring to giving up his rights and privileges of deity in order to become a man. Philippians 2.5 and following. Have this attitude which in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of man. So, the sense in which Christ became poor is he gave up all of the trappings, all the glory, all the riches, if you will, of heaven, in order to come down here and to become a human 
being. And the Corinthians had been the object of that grace. For notice, verse 9, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. It wasn't just ethereal. It wasn't just Christ lowering himself, but he did so with a purpose for your sake. And if we know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior this morning, we can say, for our sake. For our sake. For the sake of the children of God. He became poor. And the Corinthians had been made recipients of the grace of God. Notice the next phrase, that through his poverty you might become rich. Christ gave up the privileges of glory so that we would share in that glory with him. Let me say that again. Christ gave up the riches of glory so that we could share the riches of glory with him. He came to share in our position so that we could share in his position. So Ephesians, Ephesians 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. We have been made rich through Jesus Christ. And it is actually his riches that we share in. Ephesians 1.5 He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. John 1.12 But as many as received him to them gave you power to become the sons of God. Some translations make that children of God. I know why they do it. But there is a tremendous theological input in referring to all of God's people as sons of God, whether you be male or female. Because it's talking about an inheritance. And there were inherited rights that were associated with sonship that in the New Testament era, women didn't participate in. And the idea here is you have the status of a son. Ladies, you have the status of a son. Men, you have the status of a son. You have the status. This is what blows you away. You have the status of the son of God. You have the privilege of being viewed in the same way as the Son of God. Listen to Romans eight seventeen. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. You share in Christ's inheritance. You share in Christ's riches. You have become a brother to Jesus Christ. And in so doing, you became incredibly wealthy. Spiritually. Incredibly wealthy. Ephesians 1.11 And we also have maintained an inheritance. 
The main point is that Christ shared in our position so that we might share in his position. Christ came, took on our poverty so that we might take on his riches. And in like manner, we should desire to see people share in our position. We should want to see others be joint heirs. We should see others and want them to be part of God's family as well. But also included in that is a partaker in all the benefits and joys which is ours. A desire to raise people up to our standard of living. Look at verse 13. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by the way of equality. It is not to be jealous over what others have, and it is not to lord over others what we have and they do not have. It is a desire to free, uh, to free as opposed to subjugate or to enslave others. In other words, we are to use our riches the way that Christ did to benefit others as opposed to benefiting himself. And what Jesus did not do is use his riches to enslave us, but to liberate us. Now you say, now wait a minute. Isn't that exactly what Jesus did? Didn't he enslave us because of his riches? Aren't we obligated to Jesus because of what he's done for us? Don't we have a responsibility? Didn't this prove to be self-serving, if you will? And the answer to that is no, it didn't. Why not? For two reasons. First, because we were obligated to serve God before Jesus ever took on humanity. We had the obligation to serve God because he is the creator and we are the creature. He made us. He made us. And we were made for his pleasure. And it is because he made us that we have a responsibility towards God. Jesus came to fulfill the responsibility that we abrogated. Jesus came to meet the obligations that we failed in. Jesus came to be the perfect son when we denied our Father, Creator, God. And now we have an opportunity to be in a spiritual relationship with our Father, God. But in the Psalms, God says this, I do not reprove you for your sacrifices and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your field. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand, hill, on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, everything that moves is in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. There's a song that is put to uh, music from this particular passage. And that is that uh, uh, my father is rich in houses and lands. And uh, he owns the wealth uh, of the mines. But the song really takes it out of context. The idea of this 
this psalm is you can't give anything to God because he already owns it. He created it. He made it. He owns it all. Anything that we have, we've just been made stewards of. We've just been entrusted with a responsibility. So we are obligated not because simply Christ died for us. We're obligated because God made us. What Christ did was meet our obligation to God for us. Further now, our riches are not only to be used for serving Christ, but for serving others also. The reason I'm taking time here is because this is the theological basis for giving. If you notice in verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for your sakes, he became poor, that he through his poverty might be made rich. What point is being made here? There are actually three points. First, Christ gives us an illustration of giving. Christ gave of himself. And so, we should give in like manner. We should follow the example of Jesus. It also provides us with a reason for giving. Christ gave, therefore, we should give because we are related to Christ. Thirdly, it provides us with the enablement to give. Christ gave to us. And because Christ gave to us, we have the ability to give. We have resources now that we didn't possess apart from the work of God. So that giving is a matter of grace. In this passage. Secondly, grace in giving perseveres in fulfilling its commitments. A year ago, the Corinthians had wanted to participate in the gift that was being given to the poor saints of Jerusalem. Notice verse 10. And I gave my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, you were the first to begin a year ago. Last week, we looked at the desire of the Corinthian church to be a part of this gift that was being given to the poor saints in Jerusalem. We noticed the word that they even begged. They, they, they pleaded with the opportunity to be a part of this gift. Saying that Paul probably did not approach them because they were so poor. And they were begging to be a part of this gift. Paul says, okay, a year ago you were begging to be a part of this. Now, you need to follow through. Now, you need to give. Over a year ago, Paul had written to the church, giving them instructions as to how they were to proceed with the collection for the poor saints at Jerusalem. Listen to 1 Corinthians 16. Now, concerning the collection for the saints. Very clear. Now, concerning the collection for the saints. As I directed to the churches of Galatia, so you do also. On the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. And when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I shall send with them and letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem, etc., etc. We'll get more of that next week. Now, it was time to complete the collection that they had committed themselves to. 
verse 11. So there may be also the completion of it by your ability. They had committed themselves to this collection, but it never materialized. It didn't happen. They were not putting aside on the first day of week the monies that they had pledged, if you will, uh, that they said they were going to get. They did not. A year transpired. And Paul says, now, now I'm ready to come. And you need to get moving on this. You need to start collecting these, these funds. So, what happened in that intervening period? Over a year lapsed. Probably at least a year and a half. From the time in which the church is begging and saying, can't we participate in this gift, to now, nothing's happening. That year and a half was pretty tumultuous. That year and a half had a lot of things going on in the life of that church. For one, Paul had rebuked the church for that relationship that the man had with his father's wife and said, you need to practice church discipline in this matter. Paul had rebuked the church for their divisions. Some say I'm Paul. Some say I'm Christ. Some say I am of Apollos. The church had broken into factions. There were strife. There were divisions. There were all kinds of things that were going on. It's easy to see how the collection for the saints in Jerusalem would have been put on the back burner. They got bigger issues. They got other issues. They can't even get along. They can't even celebrate communion the way it ought to be celebrated. Are we really to expect that this church is going to follow through on its commitment that it made to these poor saints in Jerusalem? Well, Paul says, you need to. You need to follow through on your commitment. Application. A lot of unforeseen things can take place between the time that we commit ourselves to giving and the actual time in which it's performed. A lot of times we start off with a good heart, right attitude, and we intend to do certain things, and then the unforeseen happens. And sometimes those unforeseen things aren't, pretty, aren't too pretty. Sometimes people are not getting along in the church. Sometimes there's strife, there's division. Some were questioning the Apostle Paul's authority as an apostle. They were even questioning his character. There are a lot of things that can dissuade people from giving. We need to persevere through the negatives. We need to continue to persevere. For grace perseveres. Nor should we allow the negatives we are experiencing in life to sidetrack us from doing good. The third grace principle that we, le we learn is that grace in giving is reciprocal. Grace gives what we do have. Verse 12. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a man has, not according to what he does not have. So the way that we value wealth is not by looking at what we don't possess, but rather by looking at what we do possess. 
If we look at what we don't possess, we might view ourselves as pretty poor. If we do look at what we possess, we might look at ourselves as pretty rich. But grace understands that there is an equality. Notice verse 13. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but the way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their want, and their abundance also may become a supply for your want, that there may be equality. We are to give in times of our abundance, and then we are to receive in times of our need. It is to be giving and taking. That is what God has intended for the Christian life to be like. We are to be meeting the needs of one another. Giving of one's abundance. Uh, got the great illustration. I appreciate that sometimes on Wednesday night, some people bring uh, from their garden and place on the steps out there just some of the excesses that they have from their garden. And they say, anybody who wants it, just take it. That's providing out of one's abundance. Uh, we've got more than we need, take it. Okay? And the idea here is that that's what we do. And then there are times in which we may be at need, and so then we take. And then there might be times in which we can provide, and they take. We need to understand that principle for some very very practical issues. Some people find it easier to be on the receiving end. Some people find it easier to take than to give. Some people don't like to give, but they like to receive. Some people like to give, and they don't like to receive. They like to participate, by helping others, but they don't want to be in a situation where they're being helped. There needs to be a measure of humility in which we recognize the importance of giving and we recognize the importance of receiving. And I say a measure of humility because sometimes when we are people who don't want to receive, deep down inside we may look askance at those that do and think, well, I'm providing for myself, why don't they? I'm taking care of my family. Why don't they? Well, we need to recognize that there is a process here of giving and of receiving. We don't always want to be on the giving end, and we don't always want to be on the receiving end. In all likelihood, in most circumstances in life, we are at one and the same time, in some areas receiving, and in some areas giving. Some ways we're helping others, and other ways they are helping us. And that's the way it ought to be. Which brings us to the last thought here, and it's the theological conclusion of the matter, and it's kind of profound. And that is, grace recognizes its dependence upon God. Verse 15 almost comes out of the blue. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. 
That is a quotation from Exodus chapter 16, verse 18. In Exodus chapter 16, there is instruction for the children of Israel as it relates to manna. Manna was that heavenly food that was provided by God. If you remember the incident, it was a, a food that was found on the ground in the morning as part of the heavy dew. And they were to gather that, that manna together. And the scripture says they were to gather it over. And when they gathered, they went back and they found out that they each had an over. Whether they gathered a lot or whether they gathered a little, it turned out to be the same. They each gathered an, an over of this food. And we now have a principle, 2 Corinthians 8.15, taken from that situation. So what is the principle? What is the lesson from the manna? The best explanation that I could find was found in the word biblical commentary on this particular passage. So I want to give them credit. And the overarching thought is, the point is, the provision and need were matched. Provision and need were matched. God provided enough for all. And all had enough. God provided enough for all. And all had enough. God has provided for us collectively, just as he provided for Israel collectively. And together, together we all have enough. And together there is enough for all. So, let's look at the simple application, the simple illustration of this. As we pool our resources, we find that there is enough. When you think about the church budget, you don't have to know an awful lot about people or the church or whatever to realize that people are contributing to the church budget at different amounts. Some people are contributing more. Some people are contributing less. They're contributing in accordance with the way in which God has blessed them. That's the whole principle of tithing. It's why it's a percentage. It's in direct relationship to the amount in which God has blessed us. And God has blessed us corporately to such a degree that the budget of the church can be met. We put it all together. We take all the giving, different levels, different commitments, different incomes. You throw it all together, you find that there is enough money to do God's work because God provides for his people enough. We're to extract from that and recognize that that same principle exists in the material care of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Collectively, we have enough. 
collectively, we can help one another. If we understand that God's intent in providing me with my material possessions has more to do than just with me. But God is providing not only for me, but God is providing for his people through me. And God is not only providing for you, but God is providing for his people through you. And the way in which God provides for me and for you is through one another. We are to say that giving is in fact a spiritual dimension. It's spiritual for three reasons. Number one, it recognizes the sufficiency of God. There was enough manna. One Israelite did not have to be jealous over another Israelite because they are collecting too much and there won't be enough for me. There's enough for us. God's riches are abundant. We can't outgive God as it were. The second spiritual truth is that when God was at work in saving me, God is at work in saving us. For your sake, plural, he became poor. We have a tendency to always make matters of salvation individualistic. The far majority of the passages in Scripture is their corporate. God is redeeming the people. God is saving the people. God is bringing a people together. God had more in view than you, singular and me singular, in saving you and saving me. He had us in view. And he had all the believers in Lebanon in view. And he had all the believers in the United States in view. And he had all the people, believers in the world in view. And he had all the believers of all time in view. In fact, before any single person was made, he chose from among fallen mankind a people, people, plural, for himself. Not a person, a people. God has saved us collectively. And because we are saved collectively, that's why we have a unique responsibility to each other. Different from our responsibility to the world. Different from our responsibility to the poor around us. Yes, we bear responsibility to them, but this passage is we bear a unique responsibility to each other because we're a family. We're a family. And most families that I know look out for each other and share with each other resources to meet their needs. That's what we are called to do. To be a family of God helping each other in the living of this life to the honor and glory of God. Let's pray. Our Father, help us.
to recognize our responsibility to one another. Thank you, Lord, for the way in which you provide for us. And indeed, uh, you have provided for us wonderfully. And we thank you and praise you. And uh, I pray you would help us in those areas, in those times in which we are in need. And we have to humbly receive from others. And then there are times in which we are in abundance. And then we give to them. Lord, help us to recognize that spiritual truth. Even as we have different gifts. And there are times in which we minister our gifts. And there are times in which other people minister their gifts to us. May we realize that that is true not only in the spiritual realm, but the material realm as well. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.